Let's go to Psalm 46. Psalm number 46. We're working our way through a uh, beautiful, beautiful little psalm. I think a psalm that should uh, reflect a thankful heart. Because even though there are commands in here that uh, really stand out, the fact that he tells us to let go, cease striving, be quiet. Those are some of the words you find in your translation for verse 10. I think those who know him and know him well appreciate words like this. That's why I call it a, a psalm for a thankful heart. As we work through our text today, we're starting in chapter 46, the first three verses. This is stanza number one that we're going to reflect upon. So I'm going to read verse 1, 2, and 3, and verse number 10. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change... Though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at the swelling pride, cease striving, verse 10 says, and know that I am God. Heavenly Father, help us today as we go into this passage to gain a greater appreciation of what you're doing in our lives, to help us trust you. We just pray your direction for our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I have some opinions, most people do, but I have opinions concerning songs especially. I think they're best written from experience. Songs are best sung perhaps even by those who know what they're singing about. Even over the years, outside of the concept of songs as a teacher, I've read a lot of papers. Some were written by students who have no idea what they're talking about. Generally, it's interesting, when they don't know what they're talking about, they use the bigger words. They use more cliches. They they work in a, such a way, I, I, I picture it this way, their phrases are so disjointed, almost like they, they want to make a point, and they strive real hard to make that point, and then they jerk back suddenly, and they, they just can't make two sentences go together. Kind of like a teenager learning a stick shift. That's what some papers feel like when you're trying to understand, what are they saying? I don't get it sometimes. But... When we, when we grade on technicalities, we work with proper grammar, we work with punctuation, we look for proper outlines, we look for proper footnotes, we look for the proper margins and fonts in, in our world today with papers and such. It's all very wonderful, but I think I'd rather read a paper by somebody who even messed up the proper side of it all, maybe even misspelled words, but wrote it from their heart. You can tell the difference. I say that also of those who sing, or those who speak. 
Sometimes you polish it up so much that the heart is not a part of it. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes there's even that hint that somebody speaking or singing about the Lord really do not even know Him. But they're singing words or saying words. Shallow songs are generally written by shallow knowledge. Insincerity in all of this grows greater the further one moves away from the subject they're talking about. Now, why do I do all that with you this morning? And it's simply this, because I have a cat. You say, what? Yes, her name is Greta. She's a cat. Now, I asked uh, Pam if I could speak about the cat this morning. She said, ask Greta. So I did, and she didn't answer me. So I'm going to speak about Greta just for a minute. Greta, Greta is our parsonage cat. I don't know if that makes her more spiritual or not. I know some people have opinions about whether or not their animals are spiritual uh, or even things like that. But Greta is never insincere about her, her emotions. You know what she's thinking. It's just something about that cat that you can read her so very well. Here's, here's a, a typical thing. It's been going on for two years now as we're merging all of Pamela's things from Bethany here into the house over here. We have boxes here and there, and we're always unpacking things and moving things and organizing things, and she hates that. The cat hates that. She doesn't like her world messed up. She likes everything in this place, and, and where there's furniture being moved and boxes being moved and, and rooms being vacuumed and all these things, it doesn't matter. Her whole world is upset. But you know that she's upset. Because what we did was we bought her a stress pad. It's a corrugated cardboard uh, box that sits on the floor. And when she's stressed, she goes over there and she just digs into it. And it's amazing how many times a day she's over there going through that thing. We call it her stress pad. And I've wondered if maybe that might be useful for human beings too. We could just install them here in the pews or something that we, when you're all worked up, you could just go at it and scratch away. But, but the point is simply this. You're, you're not surprised by that when you see her doing that. She's expressing very well what she feels. She, she, can, she can be very genuine in that. I, I just use the word. She's not insincere at all. The point all the way around this story and all the rest is simply this. When we go into chapter 46, we can cover a whole chapter very insincerely. We can deal with the words. We can make it look just like it says in the polished forms and all that. And miss the heart. The heart that goes with this song. There is a command. You know that. I emphasized it last week in verse number 10. Where it says, cease striving. Be quiet, you might have. Something that should be understood. Something that should be carefully done. When God said, cease striving, it's not the same thing as saying, give up on doing what's right. When he said, cease striving, he did not say, stop giving answers to the issues of your day. 
He did not say, don't debate what you believe. Don't speak on behalf of truth. He did not say that. He didn't say, always yield to the world's influence. He did not say that. He didn't say, give in, let go, become a doormat, retreat quietly to your corner. He didn't say that. Because the Lord is not addressing, in this chapter, your relationship with the world. You're in this world. You can stand for truth in this world. You can speak about truth in this world. You can make statements in this world, even though the world would like to silence us. You can do all that. He's talking about your relationship with Him, not with the world. The context is a relationship between us and God. That's the context. Even though it's written by a Jewish worship group, the sons of Korah, it's not limited to the Jews, or even just to worshiping Jews. It's addressed to the nations. Verse number 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will, exalt, I will be exalted in the earth. It's also written to the people of Jacob. We see in verse number 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. There's references to both in this passage. But I think it's kind of interesting that Israel's brought up here, not just because this is a songbook for Israel worship, but Israel is the perfect illustration of what verse 10 is trying to say. See striving. See striving. You go back to the book of Genesis, you find a man named Jacob in chapter number 20, or 32. Jacob is traveling back home with his family, his two wives, his 11 children. And as they're traveling with all the things that they own and such, he sent all of them across the stream and he stayed on the other side of the stream for the night. And it says that uh, when he was left alone... Genesis 32, verse 24 and beyond. A man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. I always stop and try to picture this story. Is that the first inclination on your mind when somebody just shows up? Well, I'm going to wrestle with this guy. He did. He wrestled with him all the way through the night. Matter of fact, Jacob was pretty, pretty intense in all this. It said that when the Man saw that he could not prevail against him. He touched the socket of his thigh, Jacob's thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Generally, dislocation stops me from wrestling. I'll tell you that much. He kept going. The, the man says, let go of me. Dawn is breaking. And Jacob says, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob says, it's Jacob. And he says, that's not your name any longer. Your name is Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now we step back from that story and we say, you know who he was wrestling with? It was the pre-incarnate Christ. He was wrestling with God. Interesting story. But in this, the statement, Israel. That's what the word means. I fight with God. 
That's the Hebrew word. I fight with God. Is that interesting? How would you like that for your name? That was to match his character, by the way. Not just of this scene, by the way. All the way through the Old Testament, it looks like that. I fought with God. I contend with God. I've struggled with God. I've resisted. I've opposed. I've competed with Him. Striving is fighting. The Cambridge Dictionary made this interesting uh, definition of striving as to try very hard to do something or to make something happen, especially for a long time or against difficulties. How many of us have ever had an attitude like that? Where we're going to keep on doing it until something happens. Until something, even if it's difficult, if it's long, I'll do that. Look at the command again. Verse 10. Here is one who is trying very hard to do something or to make something happen. Maybe they've been doing it for a long time. Maybe they've been doing it with difficulties. Maybe they've struggled with God. Maybe they resisted Him. Maybe they opposed Him. Maybe they competed Him to have mastery at that moment. To finish it off His own way. To accomplish something by His own power. And yet God says to him, Let go. Stop. Cease. Let it drop. Abandon the struggle. Relax. Refrain from more exertion. Forget it. Leave it. Let go and be quiet. I believe the Lord is talking about somebody who's fighting with him. That's why the command is as it is. Maybe the fight is that of an unbeliever. Willing to acknowledge God's sovereignty over him. Maybe it's the fight of a believer who doesn't want to acknowledge God's sovereignty over him. I said him. Could I put her in there too? Is that fair? Could it also be maybe somebody who uh, wants her own way with God? See, this psalm is not a battle with the world. It's about the fights you pick with God. Okay, I gave you a large portion of the application. I didn't even deal with the first three verses yet, have I? But how does this little war happen? And what does God tell us about it? Let's go back to the beginning of it here in chapter 46. And look at the first couple of verses. I said before that this psalm starts with a statement. It's a statement. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's our response to that, that we cease striving and know that He is God. There are three stanzas here, and I told you about them last week. We're just dealing with stanza number one today, and I call it Trust Regardless. Trust Regardless. In the midst of change... Still trust Him. I emphasize the word trust, like I said last week. Trust is exhibited in two ways in this, in verse number 10. One is 
first, stop what you're doing. And second is, start doing something. And that is the second part of it. Cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving and know. That's what we're supposed to be doing, is knowing. Knowing. I find it a very interesting word. I, I promised I'd bring you up to speed on that word, and I'm going to do it right now. When I was looking up this word, no, I, I'm not surprised at this. The Hebrew has many different words for the word no. K-N-O-W. To know something. There are the ways where we know things by our senses, by our eyes, by our ears, by our taste. We, we can say, okay, I, I know what that is. I know what a lemon tastes like. You know, I, I know what, you know, something prickly feels like. We, we understand knowledge by senses. That's not hard for us to do. But there's another Hebrew word, and the word that you're looking at here, it speaks of a knowledge first brought on by the senses. But it goes beyond that, where we observe it, and we reflect upon it, and we experience. A lot more. We investigate it. We prove it. And what I found very interesting about this is it doesn't stop there either. Because this is not only a knowledge that learns, but I thought this was most intriguing. It gives it back. And I said, gives it back? What that means is, this is a person who's learned by an experience and is able to share it with somebody else that they can learn it too. It doesn't end with me. I pass it on. This is not knowledge just between me and what I know about God, but it's something that I am to teach others so that they can know it too. That's a neat little word. So here he says, Stop! Cease! Be quiet! And know by experience. Know. Test me. Prove it. Know thoroughly. Learn it. And pass it on. I am God. Now that's a very intriguing thing. Because the Lord wants us to know Him like that. Do you know that? He's, he's not interested in the ritual. He's not interested in the trivial. You might be able to beat anybody in a Bible trivia contest, but that's not going to do it. He wants you to know Him. To know Him. That's a privilege. Do you not realize that? What an incredible thing we have as believers. The opportunity to know God. To understand more about Him, to experience what it is to trust Him, to investigate His trustworthiness, to prove Him. And not only just for our sake of learning it, but so that we can give that back to others, that they can know it too. The Lord does test us, doesn't He? Does He try us? Does the Scripture say He tries our heart to see if any wickedness is in us? He does all those things. And then he turns to us and says, Now, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's Psalm 34, verse 8. Now, I think Peter 
learned that lesson a little bit along the way. When he's writing his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he said, Like newborn babes, we should long for the pure milk of the Word, that we may grow in respect to salvation, since we have tasted of the kindness of our Lord. In other words, folks, by now, as a believer, you should have an appetite, an intense appetite for God's Word. You should. That's what growing Christians do. They want more. They're growing in their salvation. They're learning more and more about it because they have tasted of the kindness of their God. Is that you? That's where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be experiencing and learning and growing because, folks, there is no substitute for the Word of God. There's nothing else out there that you may grow thereby. It's your spiritual food. It's your spiritual drink. It's the experience of eating and drinking. You see, you can put a plate in front of somebody and say, here's your food. But what must they do? Eat it. Right? That's the experience. That's the only way it does them any good. So we have God's Word in front of us. It's perfect. It's wonderful. But if we're not experiencing it, if we're not growing by eating and drinking of it, then it does no good for our nourishment. We're called to feast upon it, you see. The knowledge of facts are important, but we need to digest them. We need to test them. We need to know them by the experiences that come along to bring about a deeper trust and a truer knowledge of God. I speak of sincerity today because that's what this text is calling for. This is not a shallow relationship with God. When he says, stop and know that I am God, he's calling for us to go very deep in our understanding of him. And that's why these stanzas stand before us in the first couple of verses. Because these are the illustrations of how you come to know Him. This is what it means. This is why you go through it. Stanza number one is to trust Him regardless. Now that's an interesting word to put behind trust, isn't it? Trust regardless. I could address that statement today from just a perspective of the context, of course, of the Jewish world. It says, God is our refuge and strength. And they would understand that probably better than we would. Because they spent a lot of time in battles. (laughs) You know that in the Old Testament. They found it necessary to fortify their cities. They made fortresses out of many of them just in case of conflicts. I don't think there's any fortresses set up in Hillsdale. You don't have turrets on your roof, do you? Anything that looks like a battle's about to take place? Well, there is a strange little house down the street, that strange tower-like thing. But you look at the houses, you say, well, we're not built for warfare. Notice something about this phrase, though, verse number one. God is our refuge and strength. That's not stated 
for you to debate it, is it? Is there a question mark at the end of that phrase? Is God our refuge and strength? It's a statement. It's a statement that He's our refuge. He's our shelter is the word for that. Sometimes for rain or storm, usually from some sort of danger, God is our storm shelter. No, we wouldn't write it that way, would we? Some take the word figuratively and say, well, um, He's our trust. He's our hope. He's the place where we go when trouble arises. He's our strength. Our stronghold. Our security. In the Greek translation of this, it says He's our dunamis, which is the word for power or ability. I find this interesting. Notice this. It says He's our refuge and strength in verse number 1. It says in verse number 7, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. It says in verse number 11, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Do you think he's trying to say something? He keeps repeating the similar concepts. He's our stronghold. He's our stronghold. He's got the abilities of power, security. He's omnipotent, isn't he? Is that the word we use? By the way, if he's omnipotent, then who's greater than he is? No one. He is our strength. He is our refuge. A very present help in trouble. The NIV would be an ever-present help in trouble. But you see that in verse 1, don't you? Let's put it this way. He's not only omnipotent, but He's omnipresent. And I like that very much. Because it's great to have an omnipotent God, but I think at times it sounds greater that He's with us all the time. What good is to have omnipotence if He's not there when you need Him the most? It says he's ever-present. Ever-present. Dr. John Talley, the president years ago of Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, when I was a student there, he taught us these words. He says, grace is God's help when you need it. That was his definition of grace. God's help when you need it. And you know what I thought? I need him all the time. That's God's grace. I need Him all the time. The world criticizes us for our faith. It criticizes our God. Especially in the time of calamities and disasters, what is the question they always ask? Where was God? They don't see Him at that moment. But what's interesting is they don't seek Him in the time of prosperity, do they? They don't acknowledge Him when things go well. They don't turn to Him when things are right and when things are secure. But they are very quick to accuse Him when things don't go well. The psalmist is not writing to them. He's writing to you. He's writing to me. The verse says God is our refuge. 
He is our strength and a very present help in trouble. You see, believers, we have a very unique relationship with Him. The fact is that He is with us. And it's going to say that several times in the psalm. He is with us. He is with us. Tell me when He's not. He is with us. He guides us. He's even intimately acquainted with us. And what we do. Psalm 139, if you haven't read it lately, go through it again and realize how much he knows about you. It just might alarm you, by the way. He knows what you think before you say it. He knows when you get up. He knows when you go down. He knows when you sit. He knows all these things. He knows all these things. It's a powerful little psalm. But he's with you always. He is ever-present. Especially... In trouble. Make a note of this. Verse number one, the last two words, just a simple note for you. He does not exclude trouble from the life of the believer. You knew that, didn't you? There are those who walk about today who say the gospel is all about prosperity and all the good things you're going to have and you'll never have trouble again, and, and they're not accurate. That's not what God says. He's with us in trouble. He doesn't show you a a loophole around it. He doesn't say, I'm going to remove it. I'm just going to let you go on without any trouble at all. You cannot live on this planet and not know trouble. But here's the beauty. God is ever present. He's always here. Paul knew persecution, didn't he? The Apostle Paul. He knew trouble. God was with him. Peter knew persecution. God was with him. The Apostle John, he knew persecution pretty well too. God was with him. Jesus prayed in John 17 that they, his disciples, would remain in the world and yet that God would keep them. You see, God doesn't exclude us from trouble. The psalm does not say you will be trouble-free. It says God is ever-present in trouble. And that's different. That's different. See, Peter wrote it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. Read a handful of verses 5, 6, and on. He says, speaking of believers who are protected. I like that word. They're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, he says, if, for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. Who's in charge of that avenue? Who is the one who takes you down that path? God does. He says, I want to prove your faith. I want to put your faith to the test because your faith is more precious than gold which is perishable. And when it is tested, 
It's found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter writes to these poor folks and he says, Folks, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you. Don't be surprised when it comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So don't be surprised. The believers in that day knew what it was to draw ever closer to the Lord who was with them in trouble. He was with them all the way through. David wrote about that too, by the way, in Psalm 23. Really? Yeah. You know the verse that most of us hide away from. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You say, why is that verse in there? All the rest sounds beautiful, and then you've got that. The sheep, being led by their shepherd, sometimes have to go up to the plateau where the grass is. That's where the sun would be. That's where the, the, they would find the sweetest of the food. And that's where the psalm is leading the next verse. So the shepherd would take him up some sort of a ravine where there might be cliffs and there might be vegetation and there might be things that darken the path with shadows. Those shadows are dangerous, by the way, because not only is that the only route up, but that's also the route where the wolf and the bear and the lion like to hide out in the vegetation because breakfast will be by soon. They know how that works. That is a dangerous path. Does the shepherd say, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll stand at the bottom of the hill and just fling you up onto the plateau. No. He walks up there with his sheep. What does it say? I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are with me. You see, even in this psalm, look again at verse number 2, the way it starts. Therefore, this is right after the word trouble. <laughs> Therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. Why should we fear? Well, the mountains are moving. The earth is shaking. Terrible things are mentioned here in verse number 2. The earth is changing. There's potential. The earth might change. The, the mountains might slip into the sea. The, the waters are roaring and foaming and the mountains are quaking. You know, those are the kind of things that mess up a GPS. You're trying to go along and you think you've got your path figured out. And suddenly something is different and it doesn't know where it is. Houses can shake and fall. We know how they shake around here a little bit. Directions change in life. Mountains disappear. You say, well, I've never seen one. Can you imagine this for a minute? Mount McKinley or Denali, whatever they call it today, up in Alaska, 20,000 feet tall. Could you imagine that slipping into the Bering Sea and disappearing? Would that impress you? So, whoa, that's a big change. Look at the way he describes these things. Seas roar, mountains move, ground shakes, earth changes. What's that got to do with me? To some, any natural catastrophe is frightening. It's unpredictable. 
we know tornadoes around here. Some people know hurricanes, like my dad especially. Tsunamis, those are terrible things to witness. We can't control those things, can we? We can't step out in front of them and stop them. We can't tell them to go some other place. We don't have control of any of them. You can't even yell at the sun to get up in the morning. We can't control those things, but we live in them, don't we? We live in them because we live here. As we age, there's a lot of things we can't control. We sometimes turn to fear or distress. Anxiety builds. We get our little stress boxes and we start scratching all over them. Why? Because we're in a situation we can't control. And we somehow think that that helps. Those are natural responses. We're looking for a spiritual response here. And what God says is, don't fear. Stop fighting. Stop striving. Be still. Be quiet. Regardless. Isn't that a big word now? Regardless. See striving and know that I am God. Spurgeon said that this Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's psalm. He said, why? This is what he went on to say. Whenever there was any great trouble, Luther used to say, let us sing the 46th psalm together and let the devil do his worst. (laughs) That was his approach. Look at the command, folks. Terrible things could happen in verse number 2, verse number 3. But verse number 1 never changed. Did it? Does it say God is our refuge and strength when there is no change? Does God only prove Himself strong when the earth is not shaking? When the mountains aren't disappearing? Is God only God when there's no trouble? I always got that, that, that always tickled me. On Sunday afternoons when I was, several years back, I would watch NASCAR, listen to NASCAR races. Love enjoying the NASCAR race and listen to it. They'd always interview the winner and the one would always say, it's like, God was with us today. I said, wasn't he with the 42 other guys out there too? If you came in second, was God not with you? Only when you win, right? That's the mentality I'm afraid many of us live by if we don't actually write it out, but we think that way. If things are right, God is with us. If things are wrong, something's not right in this picture. This verse does not say that. He says, stop it! Know that I am God. That's what he calls us to do. Even if everything changes. Even if the mountains fall out. Even if all these things happen. I am God. And he doesn't change. That's a powerful statement, folks. When you get down to it, much of of life has this effect on us. We don't have control. We don't have a control. 
But God says, trust regardless. You're trying hard, I know. You're trying hard to do something. You're trying hard to make something happen. You're, you're going to do it for a long time. You're going to persevere. You're going to do it through difficulties. You're going to struggle. And maybe you're struggling with God. Maybe you're resisting Him in the process. Maybe you've even opposed Him because you know what He wants and you don't want to do it. You compete as if you want mastery in all this. And you want to finish it off your way and you want to accomplish it by your own power. And God says, let go. And no, I'm God. I'm God. You know what I'm very glad for? This morning that we had this communion service, you say, well, how does, this, how does this coincide with what we're doing here? I'm very glad that God did not give us the assignment of discovering how one can be saved. In other words, he didn't say, why don't you guys come up with some ideas of how we can do this? Because to this day, we'd still be debating the whole point, wouldn't we? Everyone would have an opinion of what it means to be saved and how you could go about doing it. And we'd go all through these rituals and techniques and ideas and probably 20 plan step or something like that. But we'd all have these mentalities and, and opinions and all these other things about salvation. And God says, this is how it's done. I gave my son. He is the truth and he is the life and nobody comes to me except through him. That's sovereignty in salvation. God says it's this way. And he proved his love for us. He gave his son. When we talk about salvation here, there is salvation in no other name but the name Jesus Christ. When we take this bread and we take this cup, we acknowledge something real simple. That is, we couldn't do it. We couldn't save ourselves. If we wanted to, you could fight that all you want. God says, stop. Just know that I'm God and I sent my son. Trust him. You see that? That's what we do when we remember at this table. We're saying, this is what I trust. I trust that Jesus Christ gave his body for me. Jesus Christ shed his blood for me. That his sacrifice on my behalf was sufficient. That's all I needed. God did it all. I just have to stop and trust him. See? If, you, if you're willing to accept that for your salvation, which is all of eternity, why can't we do that on Monday morning with the things that are temporary? Why can't we live that way on a Tuesday with things that really don't matter for eternity? Why can't we move into Wednesday and trust Him that same way? Why is it so hard to be practical about it when we could be so theological? You see, I'm aiming at sincerity. That the things that you are show. You believe Jesus Christ to be your Savior, right? Live like it. That's what God is saying. No. Know me. I am God. Heavenly Father, we're about to take of a communion service again to remember what 
you have done for us. What our Savior has done for us. Even what the Spirit has done for us to bring this to our understanding that we might know you. The only true God. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have done to bring us to this day. We are amazed at your love for us. And how you have given to us all these things. That we can know you. You are very kind to us. Very generous toward us. As we partake of this communion service, we are mindful, Lord, of our own sinfulness. We are mindful that we're unworthy of every single drop of blood. And yet still, you loved us while we were yet sinners. You gave your Son that we might be saved. That we might know eternal life and that we might have a relationship with you forever. We're amazed by that. So we come with thankful hearts too. Thankful for what you have done. Quick to give you the praise. And to remember it again as we partake of this bread and this cup. May we be thankful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.